This is an ABC podcast. I'm Ed Lebrock with you on Conversations today. The French horn is the orchestra's most mysterious instrument. It's made up of metres and metres of meticulously coiled brass, and when you play it, you stick your hand inside the horn's bell, which points backwards, away from the audience. The horn's sound can thrill like no other. Its powerful call brings a nobility to the brass section, and yet it can caress your ears gently enough to sit flawlessly alongside the flutes and clarinets of the woodwind section. The mechanics of this perplexing instrument make it one of the hardest to master. But master it, Peter Luff has. And for many years, he's been one of the country's leading horn players and teachers. But the horn wasn't an instrument that Peter set out to play. In fact, when he was a child in Perth, the horn really chose him. Immediately, Peter was in love. Hello, Peter. Hello, Ed. Peter, what is a French horn? A French horn, well, it's a big conical tube of metal, about four metres long, where you roll it all out with a small end and a big end, and you blow on the small end, vibrate your lips, and the sound comes out the big end. It's all curly, curled up. Okay, so it's made of brass, so strictly speaking, it's a brass instrument. It is, yeah, yes. By definition, it's a brass instrument. How do you play it? What do you do? Can you give us a lesson, actually? Well, you need to vibrate your lips. So you put your lips together and you blow wind past the lips and it makes a buzzy raspberry sort sort of sound which comes from your lips and that goes into a mouthpiece which goes into the horn, and the horn is a very expensive amplifier. So how do you teach this at the very beginning? What what sort of muscles are you using? At the very beginning, I mean, if you were to teach a child to start a brass instrument, you might, for example, get them to put their lips together and make a raspberry sound because kids can do that quite naturally. And then you get them to place the mouthpiece on the lips and, well, when I was a child, they got me to make sort of motorcycle or motorcar noises, you know, through the mouthpiece. So you get the sensation of, of how the lips vibrate and then you might make adjustments as how the mouthpiece is placed on the lips, thinking long-term what would be most successful once you place into the instrument. So the fir- very first thing is to just get a sound with the mouthpiece alone and then you stick it in the end. People talk about an embouchure yep. for wind instruments. What is an embouchure? Where does this word come from? Uh, it's French, uh, of, of the mouth, I believe, boucher of the mouth, the circle of muscles around the lips which support the vibration, the vibrating of the lips. So it's not enough just to have the lips flap around. You've got to sort of support them with the muscles. So um, I would always ask my students to keep their chin a bit firm and down. You don't want them all bunched and you don't want them too kissing too much into the mouthpiece or too far back or too smiley. It's sort of a a happy balance between all of them. So the embouchure is the entire setup from the muscles around the lips and the lips themselves. So I guess it's muscles that we aren't necessarily aware of in in just Um, regular life. You you are. I mean, for example, the muscles you use would be very similar to the muscles if you were sucking a thick shake through a straw. And that's the same sort of muscles you'd use. In fact, if you watch anybody do that, they've got a pretty good setup. (laughs) So it's that, that in reverse. So you suck in reverse, sort of. So for muscles, which Mm. we, uh, some of the first muscles that we use. The very first muscles, actually. From those muscles, horn players go on to play this instrument that I think in the Guinness Book of Records, it's marked alongside the oboe as Mm. the hardest instrument to play. Just how hard is it? 
Look, anything's difficult if you can't do it. <laughs> I mean, if you have the technique and you have this, I guess, the skill, the oral skill and the capacity, lung capacity and all that sort of stuff, the instrument itself, I, I don't think it's any harder than any other instrument to perfect or to, to become professional at. It's just that there's a lot of points of failure on the horn which might not exist elsewhere. So it's very long, so you're playing in the high end of the harmonic series, which means all the notes are very close together. And so which means when you're aiming for another note, you can hit another note which is very close, which makes it a little bit inaccurate at times. And because of the conical nature, which is means the the tube itself is tapered from a very small end on one end all the way through to the other end, which is the large end, the bell end. And that makes all of the harmonics a little bit slippery, as in they sort of meld into each other. But the trade-off is the beautiful sound quality. So I guess when you compare playing the horn with, let's say, something like playing the piano, one of the difficulties might be on the piano is that you have to play often a lot of notes at yeah. the same time. Yeah, exactly. But you can see where the notes are. You can yeah. see a top note and you stick your hand out to the right and you yeah. can see where it needs to yeah. go. But with the horn, you can't see anything. No. It's... Well, it's a combination of the oral skills, you're hearing the note, and then over time you develop a level of muscle memory that your lips sort of feel what the right note is. And that, that takes many, many, many years. But it, but it is, a, it's a, you feel the note as much as you hear it. And if one of those is missing, it gets very tricky. So you might say that it's almost like playing if other instrumentalists are playing on a fairly wide path, they mm. might be doing very complex things. Mm. You as a horn player are playing on a very narrow oh, path. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. Absolutely. Yeah. Very focused with lots of points of failure. So lots of points of failure, but the sound yeah. is worth it. I, I think I think that's it for all of us. The the, the sound that the the horn can make, and the feelings that it can evoke are, are quite extraordinary. I think that's what attracts pretty much all every horn player I know is attracted by the sound. It's hard to explain sound in hmm. words, yeah. but can you have a go? Um, I mean, we use metaphor and simile and colours and tastes and smells. I, I like I like the colours. I, I feel that the sound is a golden burnished sound, if you like honeycomb or dark chocolate or something along those lines. Whereas for example a flute might be a, a lime green bright sound by comparison. Yeah. So I, I think and, and the horn sound is extremely complex. I also think of shapes uh, being a very large, round sound with a very dense centre, very dense core. We talk to students about how to produce and, and, and replicate that, that concept of sound. And that, that, that comes over, over many, many years. So, some students get it straight away. It's amazing, actually. The, the first note they play is wonderful. Other students develop it over time. It, everybody has their own unique sound, which still sounds like a horn but it's your horn sound, and that's that's what's wonderful about it. Just going back to the sound a, a little bit in general of the horn, yeah. how has that sound developed with the history of the horn? Because the, the horn has got, I mean, it's yeah. such a long history, isn't yeah. it? It's basically yeah. really thousands of years. Yes. I mean, obviously it came from the animal horn, uh, which they would blow buzzing one end and hollowed out animal horn, which would signal. It's a signalling instrument. And, in fact, it was a signalling instrument right through the 16th century uh, where people would, you know, have a horn on the a horseback to, to make different you know, signals to hunt the fox and chase the fox out and call for tea and all this other sort of stuff. As it developed, I think, well, Bach being one of the earliest famous composers for Baroque horn, 
utilize the instrument very successfully. The sound then was probably a bit brighter. Um, you would have players that would double on what the early trumpet and the early horn, the corner di caccia. And so the sound probably developed from there. It wasn't until it got into the classical period that the, the, the instrument started to, I guess, develop into a more successful chromatic instrument. And that was even prior to the invention of the valve because, of course, the horn, even though it was just a single tube, some bright spark worked out that if you moved your hand in different spots in the bell, you could fill out the notes within the series. So it was, uh, yeah, and the sound has developed over, as the instrument has developed, the use of the instrument has changed. It was probably more a noisemaker in the brass section and a musical instrument in the wind section, even as a hand horn, and then now it's developed into a fully chromatic instrument that's used both brass, both wind, and all of that. Peter, there are so many things I want to ask you about everything that you've just said. First of all, doubling. So yeah. when an instrumentalist doubles, what yeah. does that mean? Well, that they would play the trumpet as well as the horn. So the very early French horn players, and the French horn is a, a term that is a modern term, not an olden term, would be high player or a low player, and they'd specialise. Now, the high players would often also play trumpet parts or what was then the cornetti parts or whatever, and the low players would play the more... Uh, they had more facility and they'd jump around a bit more and they'd play at the lower notes of the instrument. And that, that's sort of where the sound of the horn probably developed from was the low horn players. And they would specialise back then because you would need a very specialised use of your embouchure. Yeah, the yeah. Use and, of your and, maybe a, and also a slight difference in equipment possibly. Yeah, maybe a slightly larger mouthpiece. Uh, and, and depending on the key, or you'd use a different slider or crook, which would change the key, the bass key of the instrument. So that's a bit of the horn that yeah. you actually remove. Yep, you remove it, a crook, it's called. It's yeah. just a big curly slide. And the longer the slide, the lower the pitch. You use the word chromatic. Can you explain that? So on a piano, a chromatic is if you start on the lowest white note and move up slowly every note, including the black notes, all the way to the piano. Now, a harmonic series... The first note, the fundamental, is the tonic. The next note is an octave away. The next note after that is a little bit closer, and the higher you get, the closer the notes get. So this, the harmonic series gets closer as you get higher. What happened is that if you compress your hand between some of these higher notes, you'd get the missing notes, the hand stop notes, and that's why the early horn was called the hand horn because the hand could be manipulated in the bell to cover these in-between notes and then semitones as well. So you've got half-stop notes and composers like Mozart particularly utilise these half-stop notes and fully-stop notes to create character within the music he wrote. So where does the term French horn come from? Because I know that horn players nowadays, yeah. it's just the horn, right? But many people still know it as the French horn. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different theories. It's been attributed to the French, the modern hand technique. And the early um, study books and treatise on hand antique were by French composers or French players. So we, we think that whilst the horn was probably developed elsewhere in Europe, the hand technique probably started in France. So you've already talked about Bach and yep. his corps de caccia, I think. Corner, corner de caccia. Yeah, yeah. corner de caccia, so a hunting horn, I'm yeah. sort of slightly guessing. What other composers have really use the horn a lot in their work? The first one that comes to mind in the classical period is Beethoven. And Beethoven used the horns extensively. 
uh, from the early symphonies where it was very much used as a wind instrument. Uh, and then in the third symphony, the Eroica symphony, or Heroic symphony, he's the first composer to use three horns. And How many were there before that? Usually two, usually two, yeah. in particular, and always paired. And that was really fascinating because he used the third player to fill out some of the different keys. So when horn one and two might be in one key, the third horn might be in a different, have a different crook in, so he could fill in the gaps. Beyond that, uh, Beethoven went on to use four horns in his ninth symphony. But after the third symphony, he went, went back to two horns. But what was interesting beyond Beethoven, of course, he, he sort of drifted into the Romantic period ever so slightly. You've got a composer like Brahms who jumped on the bandwagon, this four-horn thing, and this, this concept of using different pairs of horns in different keys. Because Beethoven in the ninth symphony, first and second horn are in one key, whilst three and third and fourth horn might be in another key. And so the modern symphony orchestra, whilst you have four horns, is actually two sections of two. And that's why the third horn player is acknowledged as another principal player. And so then Brahms jumped on the bandwagon. He utilised two chromatic horns, like horns with valves, and two natural horns. So we sort of, I mean, this is in, in its own way a kind of musical Sudoku. I mean, it's incredibly yeah, complex I mean, to be thinking about this as well as composing. Yeah, yeah. Well, even Saint-Saëns, even more famously, would, um, his third and fourth horn players were chromatic instruments or valved instruments. Brahms, however, preferred the sound of the natural horn, so put all the mid-range beautiful solos into the first horn part, which was on a natural horn, because at that stage that was still the preferred instrument because of the tradition, the sound, the history, all that sort of stuff. And the, the valve horn was still in its infancy and a little bit clunky and possibly not as in tune as it could have been and was still being developed, whilst the natural horn was perfect. Um, in fact, a lot of the pieces only make sense when you hear them on the natural horn. And then we need to apply that information across to our, our double horn. And what about you? Who do you like to play on the horn? Well, Richard Strauss, <laughs> Mahler, Bruckner. I, I mean, I like big romantic composers, but they they also utilise the chromatic instrument probably as best as you could while sort of still paying homage to the natural horn and the composers that led up to them. I love playing Beethoven. I love the Fifth Symphony, I love the Third I love all the symphonies. They're very difficult. Even on the double horn, they're very difficult. Um, but for me, it's it's the romantic composers. So when people look at an orchestra these days, so we have the brass section, uh, the trombones, mm. the, the tuba, the trumpets, and then over to the side, there's the horns, and then in front, there's the woodwinds, the flute, clarinet, bassoon, oboe. Yep. Which is the horn? Is it a woodwind or is it a brass instrument? It's both. <laughs> it's made of brass but it, it sort of glues the two together. For example, in a woodwind quintet, you have flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, horn. In a brass quintet, you've got two trumpets, trombone, jibber, horn. <laughs> so um, the horn does both it, it, because w when it's at its full volume and in all its glory, it can you know, match it with the, the brass players and I'd like to think dominate the brass players. <laughs> Sorry. Would they agree? No, they would not. <laughs> um, and as a wind instrument, you you really much provide the glue between the bassoons and the woodwind instruments. And and Beethoven and Bach actually wrote for bassoon and horn very very well. They they match so beautifully together and they link into the upper wind so perfectly. 
So, yeah, I, I think that's why it gets used for both. It was probably more of a wind instrument in the classical period. With the horn occupying such a unique position in the orchestra, I can't think of another instrument where it's really sort of in two sections at once. Do you horn players have a kind of special fellowship? Do you have a, a, a special um, a sort of special feeling of unity because of the difficulty, but yeah. also because of your role in music? Um, I used to think so, <laughs> and I do think so. I think... It's a unity among musicians, actually, because the the more you get involved in the industry and, and I think as a young player, yes, all the horn players hang out together. But as you become a professional and, and a musician in your own right, you realise it's music that binds us and that, that's what makes it more fascinating. And, I, and I'm much more interested now in the role that the horn plays with other musicians and other types of music than I am in the, just what the horn does by itself. So historically, orchestras had, uh, first of all, two horns and then Beethoven's time, three. Mm. Um, now there are four horns. Yeah. And how are those roles divided? So it's, it's still, uh, traditionally, it's two and two. Uh, your, your solo horn or your principal horn is the horn number one. That's where the vast majority of the solos are put. And, and uh, they play a lot of high stuff. They're usually very good in the high range, very good you know, with stress <laughs> and pressure. Your second horn player traditionally does a bit of both. And, and and these days, your second and your fourth player are usually interchangeable. They share it around because they are specialist low players and can do both. Your third horn player is uh, also a high player, will um, play particularly a lot of stuff in the romantic period. And the fourth horn is a special slow player. And that, that has its, its own skill set. That is a very difficult position because um, that's a difficult register to master as the higher register is for the, for the first and third players. So they all have a very specific role. What is the general character of a horn player, would you say? Of a horn player? Yes. <laughs> Extroverted introvert. <laughs> Great. <laughs> because you can't, you can't be an introvert while, when you're playing the horn. But I think... Uh, a lot of horn players have a tendency to be a bit introvert. Okay, where did all of this begin with you? Do you remember with that me? first moment, your relationship I do. with the horn? Yep. I, I, was a, I, I learned trumpet at primary school. Uh, West Australia's state school system was really outstanding for music. Everyone had, had access to music. We all got a chance to test out. Um, and I, I, don't, I was grade five. I don't remember what the mechanism of that was. Mm. It's just that I was selected to play an instrument, and we were offered brass instruments, um, of which I chose the trumpet, only I think because it was the one I could pick up the easiest at the time. Fast forward a couple of years at the end of primary school and I applied to go to a special music school on scholarship, uh, which was also provided through West Australian Education System. Is this of your own volition? Um, I don't remember. I think uh, my parents may have pushed me in that direction. Did your parents play a lot of music at home? Was there music around you growing up? It was played in the house, but no classical music. Uh, probably more Neil Diamond, Johnny Mathis, that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and, and not a lot, to be honest. We had one of these Lowry genius organs, and Dad would get down and just muck around. He could play by ear, and I don't know, <laughs> don't even know how, but he, he must have had lessons as a kid. But he, he'd muck around on that occasionally. But there wasn't a lot of music. I would play a lot of Pink Floyd, uh, a lot of Yes, 
a lot of that 70s rock, a lot of Queen, ABBA when I was in primary school, for example. Yeah. yeah, so no no classical music. The first classical piece I ever bought was a, 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 a tape of the Dvorak New World Symphony. That's the first piece I ever had. And that's only because we had done the first movement of the New World Symphony at Concert Band and I didn't know it was for an orchestra. So when I played it, I got the shock of my life that I couldn't hear, <laughs> couldn't hear mass clarinets <laughs> um, <laughs> the opening. Honk, 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 honk. <laughs> what did you hear instead? Uh, well, violins, of course, because it's <laughs> beautiful. Uh, but, yeah, so that was the first. And that would, that was, uh, would have been 1979. Uh, when I was in second year high school. So that's the first bit of classical music I heard. Are your parents musical at all? They are very musical, but they're not musicians. Yes. If that makes sense. Yeah, so I they mean, were encouraging, but... Yeah, very. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's music goes back into my family. My my grandmother was, was a singer. My grandfather had a great singing voice. But, uh, yeah, there's music in the family. But I'm the first musician, so to speak. Um, so I think it was to get into what was a very good high school, Chechen's senior high school, which is a special music, has a special music program attached, but it's also a very, very good state school in Western Australia. At that stage, there were two special music schools, Perth Modern School and Church and Senior High School, of which you could apply to, to enter on music scholarship, which just meant you could, you could be part of that music scholarship program, get private tuition, uh, sorry, individual tuition through the school and part of their band program, their orchestral program, their choir program, and you could be from anywhere in the state, not necessarily local. So after a couple of days of oral testing and, you know, written testing, and I just remember it going on far too long, <laughs> and then they select, I think at that stage it was maybe 800 to 1,000 kids applied from across the state. They goes down to 60, 30 in each school. Wow. And then, yeah, and then they, then they you have another round of interviews where I walked you through with my mum, as I can't remember who was on the panel, in which they put you through another little bit of rhythm test, clap this back to us and what's this note, what's that note, which note's sharp, which note's softer. I even looked at my teeth, which was really interesting, hand span. And they said, and I don't know whether this was convenient, they needed them, but they said I was most probably better suited to French horn or double bass. And with with the benefit of hindsight, I'm suspecting that they probably needed a French horn or a double bass. So anyway, I, I chose the brass instrument, which or brass wind instrument. I'd never seen a French horn before. It was sitting in the room. They had it out of the case, sitting in the case, and it looked beautiful. They also had a double bass in there. And um, I said, well, what if I want to play the trumpet? They said, well, if you don't like it after a term, you can go back to trumpet. I thought, okay, that's fair enough. So we agreed, blah, blah, went to the school. My first lesson on French horn, and I remember the teacher just gave, we all had a horn, we all had, a, the, the four of us had had some brass, three of them had played horn before, I'd played trumpet before, so we had brass experience. And all she did was got us to play a middle G and we all put them out and who can play it the longest? And, and so we just played for as long as we could and I remember thinking it was really pretty easy and I quite liked it. And yeah. then when I was left playing by myself, the sound was so different to the trumpet, just completely different to the trumpet. And I was immediately attracted to the dark quality of the note, whereas the trumpet, I think I was a very good trumpet player. I think I made a sort of nasty sound for whatever reason. But the horn I could make a really good sound on straight away. And so I really liked it. And within a couple of weeks, I, I just loved it. I, I went, I advanced quite quickly 
on the French horn. It's certainly quite a novel way of um, getting young people interested in an yeah, instrument to see yeah. just how long can you play this note for. Yeah, she just said, see so you can play it the longest, just, keep, just out of interest. It was sort of fun, so it was a game. And at what point did you realise this is what I want to do? This is what I want to take further after school? I, it was a fair bit later, actually, because I still was interested in science. I was interested in, because my parents are both trained horticulturists, so there's a bit of science in, in there. In fact, all my work experience was done in, in the histochemistry lab at Fremantle Hospital in, in microbiology. I was very interested in microbiology. My school results might say a different <laughs> tell a different story. <laughs> but but the horn itself was fine. So, But it wasn't until I was in probably the end of year 11 and I'd done my work experience at the beginning of year 11 and my teacher then, a gentleman called Paul Dewey, who's a, a tremendously successful teacher in West Australia, and I, I credit my career to, to Paul Dewey. So he, uh, he got me to go along and play in a master class at the University of Western Australia, and I was, it was the end of year 11, and, and I'm racking my brain, and I remember playing part of Strauss' first horn concerto, probably pretty badly, and, the, and I remember that it was the, the Philip Jones Brass Quintet were in Australia, and the horn player, and I do not know the name of the gentleman, I can't remember, and don't remember anything about it really, except that he gave me a really hard time, and I thought, oh, gee, you're a bit rough, you know. <laughs> Came up to us afterwards, after the masterclass, came over to me and said, so what year are you in? I said, 11. He said, no, what year at university are you in? I said, no, I'm at high school, I'm year 11. His demeanour completely changed. And he said, so what are you thinking of doing? And I said, oh, I want to be a microbiologist. He said, rubbish. <laughs> he said, rubbish, you're a horn player. And that was the moment that I thought, oh, you can do that. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. You were saying you had the revelation that you could do this as a career, you could be a musician professionally, but how did you go from high school music student to the conservatoire? I, I decided that through year 12, I mean, I, I, I was doing a lot of playing. I played a concerto or a movement of a concerto with the school orchestra on tour in Tasmania and, and um, it, you know, all these, these moments came up that I just loved so much and I loved playing, actually I loved playing the concert band. I didn't really have much exposure to an orchestra at all until I left high school. And then um, so I applied to study at the Elder Conservatorium in Adelaide. At that time, the University of West Australia didn't, did not have a conservatorium. The WAPO didn't exist. And I mean, I honestly, it probably would have been fine staying where I was, but it was great for me. To, to, to move away from Western Australia to the big smoke of Adelaide. <laughs> it's a new experiences. At the time, I, want, I really wanted to, to travel. So I did that, went to, went to Adelaide 
where I met my new teacher, Patrick Brislin. But w- what a what a wonderful human, and and really didn't teach me much about playing the horn because that that you sort of need to do by yourself. But taught me about music, taught me how to be a musician, and taught me how to behave. <laughs> Probably more importantly. <laughs> so here you are at Conservatoire. You're already playing yeah. the horn very well, but you, now you have a new teacher. Mm, mm. So what's important about that time? Is it um, what the teacher teaches you or is it is the most important thing, your relationship with the teacher, which will then encourage you to practice and to investigate yourself? That's that's a really great question because it, it's a combination of both, isn't it? I, I think it's a combination of both. I think in order to en- enthuse the student, you have to demonstrate enthusiasm yourself. Um, and I am an unashamed horn nerd completely and I love everything there is about it. And But but in order for them to experience what joy it is to work as a professional horn player, they, they need those experiences. Australian Youth Orchestra, unbelievable. Queensland Youth Orchestra system here is second to none. So they get great opportunities to know what it is. My job is to give them the skill set to be competitive enough that they might get the opportunity to experience that as a professional. And that's that's another layer of difficulty. That, that's when you've got to have a conversation. Are you prepared to put the work in that is necessary for you to be competitive? Because unfortunately, an audition process to become a professional musician is a competitive process. While you were studying in Adelaide, who did you live with? My grandparents to start with uh, for the first sort of year and a half. And then I, I decided I'd go and see the world and moved out with some, some of my colleagues <laughs> from the university, which was just ridiculous when I think about it because my grandparents had a, a beautiful place with a pool and, and a tennis court <laughs> and food. Uh, but no, and so I stayed with them for the first year and a bit, yeah. You mentioned before that your grandmother hmm. was a singer, but yeah. did did she go on and have a career no. herself? No, she she was a soprano in the Gilbert and Sullivan Society in Adelaide. Oh. And and I sort of didn't realise how good she must have been until I came across some old things after she had passed, um, including a beautiful big silver platter um, from her, the cast members, uh, with with great love and devotion to our Iolanthe. And she was always singing around the house. She was an insomniac. I would hear her cooking and singing at 3am, whenever it was in her leopard skin jammies. And, I mean, she was she was quite an eccentric. She invested in me to the point that she paid for singing lessons. Oh, really? For Wh- me. Why singing lessons? Well, she was a singer. Yes. Uh, and and, I, and I, I enjoyed singing, but I ended up having singing lessons first with um, Dean Patterson, who, who was a very famous singing teacher at the time, um, and then later on with Roger Howell. And Roger was a fantastic baritone with Australian opera. Phenomenal musician in his own right, but also completely um, on me about stage presence and how you are a musician and also how to use air. He was very good with that. But he he was also quite influential in what I did as a a horn player because he he said, and he may or may not remember this, but I, because I was sort of vacillating, maybe I could sing, you know, maybe because I liked singing and I'd sung in a couple of things that the con in the opera chorus, we did um, Marriage Figaro. But all I remember of that is 
standing on stage, singing the chorus and listening to the horns under the stage, oh. <laughs> wishing I was down there. And That yeah. makes it pretty clear. Yeah, and, and I remember Roger, yeah, as we were yeah. preparing for my non-first prize winners section of the Estedford, um, I remember him saying that, 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 that that's your answer. Do you think your grandmother's lack of a career has somehow inspired you to make sure that you had a career? Only in hindsight. At the time, no. Um, I just remember her support was completely unwavering. She came to everything she could come to, um, very interested, like she had a genuine interest with what I was doing without being pushy or anything. She was not that sort of person. But I, I remember reflecting so fondly about my time with her and talking about music. She was happy to talk about music any time of day or night. She never once said, oh, I wish I'd had a career as a singer. She was a singer. That, and she sang appropriately until, I guess, until the kids came along. So, you know, again, probably a sign of the times more than anything else. How much has the influence of your own teachers come over into your own style of teaching? Because you're renowned as, in fact, one of the world's best horn teachers, oh. <laughs> let alone in Australia. Well, I don't, don't know about that, but I... <laughs> well, I, think, I think you're being humble. Yeah, maybe. Um, in many different ways. The teachers weren't just my one-to-one instrumental teachers. I had a fantastic brass ensemble director by the name of Standish Roberts, who used to be principal trumpet of the Adelaide Symphony probably in the 60s, 70s. He was an incredible inspiration to me in in a very hard taskmaster, um, very firm in his views and was of the opinion that any problems I was having was due to a lack of hard work. Like I, I would say, I've got to play a concerto tomorrow. Can I take it easy? And I said, why? <laughs> like, what possible reason would you have? I saw my lips are a bit sore. He said, well, that's your fault. <laughs> um, other incredibly important lessons, uh, players of the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra at the time. Now, this section, they were fantastic. I, I remember as a, going in as a young, casual player and doing tours with them and concerts with them and they were so incredibly supportive and interested and, you know, appropriately firm in their instruction. Stan Fry was always pretty firm in his instruction, but in a nice, nice way. Or he did slap my hand once because I touched his pencil, but it's all right. (laughs) It's a long time ago. Um, But, no, amazing people and amazing players, and that's really what reinforced my enthusiasm that I wanted to be like them. It's a tricky thing being a teacher of people at this age, 17, 18, into their early 20s. In many ways, they're still childlike, living on their own, but very little parental support around. How do you take on that role of guiding their behaviour, just like your teachers did for you? It's a pastoral care role, primarily, I think. You, You can teach anyone the technique and the process of what it is to be a horn player. But each each student requires a different approach. Um, one thing I do stand firm on is they, they are treated as adults. They're not children. And, and, and they need need to understand that. So there's a lot of, uh, in in my school, I wouldn't say it's hard knocks, but there, there is a level of resilience you have to develop as, as a young player because you do get knocked over a lot. You, you lose a lot of auditions. You get criticised. It it's, it's can be quite ruthless at times. 
But that, I think that's with any industry. It's not not specific to music, although it feels more personal because it's your whole world. So we 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 do we talk a lot about resilience. Let's have the truth. Let's let's not skirt around it and get it out. Because for every I wouldn't say problem, every challenge you have, either technically, musically, or otherwise, there is a solution. You just have to find it. And my role is to, to guide them to that solution. One thing we try and, because they're relatively well informed when they get to the conservatorium, we tell them that the lips act like a double reed instrument, not a single reed instrument. If your bottom lip is sucked too far under your top lip, like when you push it up, it, it vibrates like a single reed and it's half as efficient. Whereas if the bottom lip is employed, because that's the difficulty often is getting the bottom lip under the top lip appropriately to help you through the different registers. And I know that because I've had trouble with that. So that's a personal thing. You know, yeah. I, I had you know, significant issues um, in my early mid-20s as a player where I had breakdowns and all that sort of stuff. So I'm very passionate about correcting technique early and I and I've done a, do a lot of adjustments of embouchure, a lot of adjustments of physical technique, a lot of breathing adjustments. Breathing is a big thing. You mentioned your own troubles with playing, the collapse of your embouchure. Can you explain how that happened? I don't think this is unique. I think most brass players will go through a period at some stage where they'll have some trouble. And I see it so often now. And I, and I have a, do a lot of work with people, with brass players all over the world, actually, who have had issues with their embouchure. In my case, I would, because I was a low player and also a low player obsessed with playing cricket and not practising, <laughs> um, I, I found myself coming a little bit unstuck um, <laughs> so, uh, and had a, well, I guess it was an embouchure injury, quite a significant one, and probably had two or three months where I couldn't do what I was supposed to be doing. So I um, had to, to sort of rediscover so is it almost like you pulled a hammy or something? Or? Yeah, it's like running incorrectly yes. and constantly injuring yourself because you're not running properly. So learning to, learning to, to run properly was the, was, the, was the key. What um, do you do when you're injured as a musician? I mean, with such it's, you know what, very it, fine little muscles. It's really tricky because and yeah. a, lot, a lot of people suffer terribly with this. Yeah, I mean, they, it's not like you can go to no. the GP and say, well, my embouchure's not but working. But you do, and, and, yeah. and, and, and I, I love my GP. He's terrific, but... Then they have no idea because these are tiny little muscle groups. They'll say, they'll get you a smile and show, no, well, there's no no palsy, there's no issue. Do you have pain? Sort of. Well, what sort of pain? Only when I play. Well, what is that? Does it hurt when you eat? Does it hurt when you drink? No, no. Well, you're fine. Well, you're not fine. <laughs> so it can, it can be anything from wisdom teeth impacting on the lip nerve to problems with TMJ and the jaw to skin allergies to nickel. I mean, it can be any myriad of things. The most common one, though, is that the analogy I used before, running incorrectly or playing incorrectly. So you're not using the muscle groups at their most efficient. And that sometimes can be related to fuel source, the air, the way you use your air, the way you use your support, and support's another big issue um, with, with this, uh, to where you're placing your lips. If they're in an inefficient position, you're working really hard and pushing the mouthpiece really hard on your face to achieve certain things which should be much easier with greater efficiency. And you can be prone to injury. Can you give an explanation of what support is? Support. Push your thumbs into your into your side just above yep. your waistband and yep. give it a little cough. 
and you feel those muscles push out. Yes. That's the very basis of support. Ah, okay. So when you cough, you are supporting the air. And so we refine that and use that. If you get any five-year-old to blow out the candles on their birthday cake, that's support because you can't do it without it. Did you recover fully? Uh, look, um, uh, yes. Yeah. In fact, probably made me better, uh, more understanding. Um, I was a young, early career teacher at that stage, had gone through this difficulty. And fortunately, it happened at the end of a season, like we were in December. I had, had been moved up in one concert from a low part to play third horn. I was so excited. It was like a Pops concert type thing. Lots of big soaring lines. And I really went for it and felt something give way on the side of my mouth just below my nose and a hot searing pain and didn't think, I thought, wow, that's a bit silly, blah, 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 be okay. But then it was some days I couldn't actually play anything for some days, which turned into weeks, um, which, and then we had our end of year break. So I actually had several or eight weeks to really think about it and have a good rest. Unfortunately, when I came back after a long rest, it was not as it had been before. So I sought uh, further help. How much do you think that idea of perfection in the classical world it puts pressure on classical musicians? I mean, there's, it's sort of, it's almost like it's not anywhere else really in the arts world. Maybe in, in ballet, in ballet, classical ballet. I think, and opera. And in opera. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, it's, we don't talk about it because you pretend it's not there and <laughs> because you have to, but it is definitely there. I mean, particularly with the advent of the live broadcast, the live video broadcasts are the most terrifying. I mean, that's, that's straight to the world if they choose to watch it. And unfortunately, you only, you only, have, you only need one really bad one to get noticed. And it, it is a lot of pressure. So it doesn't matter how much self-talk you have and how much you tell yourself, it's fine, it's only a concert, just play like, no. You're worried about not the few hundred people watching, but the potentially thousands of people that are watching. And how do you help your students get through that sort of barrier of trying to be perfect? Remind them that it's the music that matters and your vehicle. It's a vehicle. I mean, the thing is we, yes, we strive not to miss notes, of course, but the second you concentrate on that in a performance scenario is the moment that you will start splitting notes, you'll start making mistakes. You must trust that the muscle memory will kick in. And so the process that we go through in the practice room and in my teaching studio is that we take steps to mitigate against that. And so all that stuff's left in the practice room. I'm a very technically focused teacher um, and the music is part of it, of course, but we spend the first two years, particularly at the con, trying to make them future-proof future their performance, make them bulletproof, make them resilient so they can rely on that level of muscle memory under pressure. Because your, your body will default to its strongest muscle memory when you're under pressure. Well, it's clearly working because many of your students have gone on to international jobs yeah. and, and jobs around yeah, Australia. Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, you're yeah. a very successful teacher, but also an amazingly successful conductor. So well, how did that come about? Is it a natural thing for musicians when you get to a certain age, here you are, is it something that you'll just come to? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I, I was first attracted to it in my 30s. I was conducting a brass ensemble at a University of Queensland and I had the best time. We were having so much fun. It was a really good brass ensemble and I, I sort of got the bug and 
I, I don't even know why I, I liked it. Anyway, long story short, we were doing a, a shopping mall gig with QSO and the conductor got sick. They said, look, can someone do it? And I did it. And it was just stuff I knew, luckily. And that sort of flowed on to to doing an audition for the orchestra eventually in my sort of mid to late 30s. And then when I left QSO the first time, one of my first gigs that I got to go back was not as a presenter, but it was a presenter slash conductor. And it was sort of this nice little transition and then did some education concerts. And over the years, that's changed to, you know, getting the opportunity to do some of the their um, bigger concerts. Um, right down to earlier this year, I very fortunately, very excitingly, got to conduct the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra in the Town Hall Series. Well, and that, amazing. for me, is uh, you know, really a culmination of 25 years of conducting work. Peter, one of the questions that must be asked the most about the classical music world and specifically the orchestral world in in that uh, universe is what does a conductor do? Because so often, mm. you know, you can go to an orchestral concert and nobody seems to even be looking at the conductor. So what are you doing? The really good ones, really good ones you feed off. <laughs> they provide you with so much. And it's not about the technique. It's very little about conducting technique. A great conductor will make you feel comfortable in doing what you're doing for whatever reason. Like I've played under conductors have perfect stick technique, but just in my opinion, not so great to perform under because there's nothing coming back. It's a, it's a two-way conversation. The rhythm and the play, knowing where to play from can come from the concert master. Yeah, I mean, I often find myself looking down to the right. So that's the person, that's, that's the, lead the, violin, the lead violin. The lead yeah. violin, whoever she or he may be. They, they, they're, the, they're, they're, they're the critical point of contact, actually. And everything filters down to the front. So, for example, I might be working through the principal flute or the principal oboe, who invariably will be working with the concert master. So, and then, of course, the conductor gives you a framework. A conductor can be half a bar ahead at any given time because they're conducting shape and direction and giving you this amazing amount of input into how where the journey is going. Mm. The really good ones do this and they're so in their minds about what they want to do and what they want to create and it's also the spontaneity of that. You don't ever want two performances to be quite the same. Why bother with a conductor at all? Why not just have an orchestra playing with the concertmaster doing the leading? You, for the community to come together as a whole, you do need a leader. And that, that leader is not always leading, but predominantly leading. Everything works to the, for example, in a horn section, everything works to the left. If the horn section is playing, they are three, uh, four, three and two are playing with the first horn player. It's the first horn's responsibility to be playing with whoever and then it's their responsibility to either work with a conductor or whatever. If you've got a solo, yes, you work directly with a the conductor. There's so much goes on in the community that the conductor has very little control over. And sometimes they have complete control over. It really depends on the moment and the time. It's very interesting. And, I, and it's never more obvious than when I got up the front and realised I'd become one of them. And it was very different. Very different. <laughs> very different. <laughs> Were you happy to be 
one of them, as you say. So, so not, a conductor really. rather than not a, really. not really. uh, somebody in the orchestra. You weren't. No, not really. So we we talked a while ago about you singing and you were on stage mm. in the opera mm. and all you could do was listen to the horns. Yes. When you're conducting, what happens? The worst mistake in the universe is to listen to what, what you're most comfortable with. And one thing I had to learn was learn a lot more about the role of the front part of the orchestra because that that's the majority. Without a string section, you do not have an orchestra, full stop. Full stop. And, and, and also learning to let them take control appropriately because they're, everyone there is an expert in their field. And the thing is to relinquish control. As a horn player, you are 100% focused on controlling the situation. As a conductor, you have to know when not to control the situation and allow it. Some great advice given to me by a very famous conductor. said, just remember when you're playing principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, everybody is your friend. You know, you'll socialise, you'll have lunch with them, you'll have a great time. When you're conducting the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, everyone will be friendly, but not everybody's your friend. And I thought, oh, that's a bit, but it's true. <laughs> it's not that they're unfriendly, but there's a difference. There is a difference. You, you, once you occupy that mantle, you are looked at very differently. And I constantly remind myself when I'm sitting back in the horn section and looking up at the conductor, you see every little smirk, every wince, every movement. And when you're standing on the podium, you forget it sometimes. And I forget it sometimes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you go from being amongst this incredibly collegial orchestra and, yeah. and within that, the yeah. horn section, which yeah. is a, a, it's a real yeah. bond, yes. it's a fellowship, and then you go to being a conductor. Mm. So it must be incredibly lonely. It, it is lonely. What do you think will be your focus over these next few years horn playing sounds that it i mean it sounds like it's so incredibly challenging physically um is it something that you can do happily into your 60s into your 70s um, or I, i've spent so much of my life trying to refine my art as a player that i feel like a horn player how how long i do that will be completely self-selecting there will be a moment when it's not going to go well this, this unfortunately tends to be how it happens. Um, you can be happily sailing along, playing quite well, and then within a matter of months you can be really on the downturn. And that's a physical thing. There's a lot of physical effort goes into doing what we do. Um, there are great examples of players going to their 80s. There are more examples of players finishing in their 50s. So, you know, I, I'd like, I'd love another 10 years. That'd be great. Mm. But, uh, but that, that would be optimistic, I think, at, the, at, at a high level. Do you feel as a teacher that it's important then to be a horn player, ostensibly a horn player who teaches because that feeds your teaching more than being a teacher who also plays? You know what? My, my horn playing became better when I became a better teacher. Mm. It's the other way around for me. Um, I learn so much from my students and my colleagues. I, I'm a terrible watcher. I'll sit in a new horn section. I'm just looking down the line. They say, what are you looking at? I'm looking at your embouchure. <laughs> I want to know how you do that so well. So I'm constantly analysing what others do and we'll come and, I, and I'll have, have a great you know, afternoon of lessons and I'll discover stuff and I'll go and try them out, you know, myself. And, yeah, I think being an enthusiast of the act of playing the horn makes me a better horn player. 
but also as it's ter- this this whole whole old yet on old head on young shoulders debate. I wish I knew then what I know now. You have such enormous wisdom as a teacher. How much of what you've learned uh, through life of playing the horn and conducting do you take into your own life? <laughs> I should take all of it, but uh, I'll probably use it all up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, probably not enough, to be honest. Oh. I mean, we're, we're all fallible, Ed. <laughs> so, yeah, I, look, I, I, I learnt a lot about playing in an orchestra from playing sport as well. You know, these these skills are entirely transferable. Any leadership skill you develop as a conductor or a horn player or whatever can be transferred elsewhere. I think if if I could if I could provide honesty with kindness, that'd that'd be a win, I think. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for being on Conversations today. It's just been wonderful to be able to speak with you about such a special, elusive, mysterious world. And I have a feeling that people will listen to the horn a little bit differently now. Oh, good. Thank you, Ed. Peter Luff is one of Australia's leading horn players and teachers and is Associate Professor at Queensland Conservatorium Griffith University. Peter frequently plays with symphony orchestras around Australia, so watch out for those horns in the back. I'm Ed LeBrock. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Remember a time when you had one good outfit? Now the average Australian buys 56 items of clothing a year. And it feels like we're on a fast fashion treadmill that's kind of hard to get off. So, how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of Threads, the podcast that undresses the fast fashion industry. From the marketing tricks that are being used on us right now... They're going to use social media to hunt down their prey. Bang, 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 bang. ..to the lies. So, greenwashing is a marketing strategy that gives you a reason to buy. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Threads. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.